Let's open our Bibles. Open with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is Palm Sunday, so we're going to study the account of Jesus coming into Jerusalem five days before he was crucified. And this is a a passage that's really um, unique in the insight it gives us into the compassion of Jesus, how it really shows us his heart for souls. You know, people talk about Jesus as a teacher and as a healer and as a prophet and, and various other things. But, but here we get a, a real picture into God's heart for man and for his compassion for our souls. And, and it also shows the remarkable humility that Jesus uh, exemplified in going to the cross, not, not as some kind of arrogant warrior who was coming to fight it out and, and got defeated in battle, but as a sacrificial lamb, the Son of God in human flesh coming to take our sin on himself and be the sacrificial lamb who would take away the sins of the world. Now, it's, it's always important to see that side of Jesus, if we can term it that way. Because it makes what we're going to study this morning uh, really even more essential. And it helps our hearts and minds to, to focus on why and how we praise the Lord. Why do we do what we just did? Why do we take, I don't know how long we took, 20 minutes, 30 minutes to sing and stand and lift our hands and close our eyes and praise the Lord? Why, why do we do that? Well, understanding who Jesus is explains all of that. And while this is a familiar text and it's one you've probably studied a bunch of times and heard a bunch of messages about, I, the Lord really, um, and I'll say this proudly, it just was interesting to me, the Lord really gave me a different insight into this passage this week, a fresh perspective that I've never preached before, never even really talked about this angle um, of the text, and yet the Spirit of God really impressed upon my heart that this is what we needed to study this morning. And it excited me, and I, I pray that the Holy Spirit now will, will take over and just push me to the side because I don't want to mess this up. I want Him to explain this to us. So let's really be praying that God will, will speak to our hearts this morning because we're going to focus on uh, the definition and calling to praise the Lord. And I'm glad we just praise the Lord really strongly because that gives us a, a boost, a little impetus this morning to come to this text. So look at it, Luke chapter 19 verses 28 to 40, and we're going to focus really this morning just on one phrase in verse 37. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethphage and Bethany, near the mount that's called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you will say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus. They threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching, near the descent of the Mount of Olives, here's the phrase, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. little echo of the angel's message at Christmas. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teachers, rebu Teacher, rebuke your disciples. 
But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, Jesus is making his final descent into Jerusalem. Mount of Olives is a hill right across the eastern side of Jerusalem, separated by the Kidron Valley. It's not a, a high hill. It's not a mountain. It's just kind of a, a big mound. And Jesus comes through Bethany, which is, uh, if you're looking out from Jerusalem, to the right side of the Mount of Olives, through Bethphage, comes over to the top where he will someday come down and, and descend and rule on earth. And he comes now down on this donkey through the Kidron Valley over to Jerusalem. And as he's doing that, the crowd comes around him. Everything has culminated to this point. All the ministry in Galilee, all the things that he's done, it's now coming down to, to this point where he's coming to be the sacrifice for sin. And, and the, the crowd is polarized. Many of them are cheering for him. Many of them are praising him, as we'll see in just a minute. But others, specifically the Pharisees, who were self-righteous religious people who were, who were really uh, had, a, had a thought of religion based on themselves rather than the Lord, they're standing off to the side and they're resenting him and they're criticizing him and, and they're uh, basically plotting to get rid of him, which they're going to do in five days, they think. They're, they're analyzing this and saying, this needs to stop. Now, there's no question that jealousy is in play. There's no question that they were, were envious of the attention that he got and people were listening to him and not to them. But there's something far deeper at play here. He had exposed, and you see this all throughout the text, he had exposed their spiritual coldness and their hypocrisy, and they absolutely hate him for it. See, they had presented a false image of who they were. They had presented a, a religious picture of somebody that they were, but they weren't really true in their hearts. They, weren't, they didn't really love the Lord. And Jesus called them out on it, and he said, you're full of pride, and you're full of sin, and you're corrupt. He, he called them snakes and sepulchers that were, that were leading the people astray, people who essentially, for all intents and purposes, were serving the devil. And again and again, they try to trap Jesus, and they try, to, they try to challenge him with deep theological questions that they probably don't even know the answer to. And they try to catch him in, in something that's, that's disobeying the law, or they, they try to lie about his power and his motives. They, they're doing anything they can to discredit Jesus. And whether you believe in Christ this morning, whether you're a, a staunch disciple, a follower of Christ, you love the Lord, or whether you're here this morning and honestly you just reject Him outright, or you're somewhere in between, whatever state you're in this morning, please know that dishonest allegation is always the enemy's line of attack. It's always what he does to try to move us away from faith and try to move us away from praise. He constantly goes after the character and the promises of Jesus and tries to discredit him. He knows he can't, but he still tries. So he's constantly going after our minds and our hearts. The Pharisees here are the embodiment of that. They're, they're trying to nullify his message and get the people to reject him and turn the crowd against him so when they finally go after him physically in a few days that hopefully they'll have the support of the people and everybody will say, well, Jesus was just a farce. But that's not what's going on in the moment. Look back at the text. Because as Jesus sits on the donkey and he crosses over the top of the Mount of Olives and he starts the descent 
down into the valley. The crowd is shouting and they're praising him and they're calling him king and they're celebrating who he is and what they've witnessed him do. And, and you saw that phrase that I highlighted in verse 37. It's described as the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Now that phrase goes way beyond the 12. The, the word actually in the Greek means multitude. There was a huge huge throng of people. And it wasn't just the 12 disciples saying, hey, look at Jesus. He's the guy we're following and, and we're praising him. This, this is the whole crowd that is joyfully with a loud voice praising God and, and, and silencing the objectors who are standing there with their arms crossed and a mean look on their face. And Matthew says that the crowd shouted Hosanna, which I said earlier means save us now. They recognize who he is. They recognize what he's come to do. And they're waving palms and they're putting their coats on the ground in front of the donkey and they're yelling out praise. It's, it's like a moving worship service. And with the topography of Jerusalem and the, and the proximity of the Mount of Olives to the city and, and, and this, this, this kind of short distance that's kind of a natural amphitheater, there's no question that people that were in Jerusalem heard this. That the city is hearing these cries across and this praise of this multitude of people. And they look across because it's a very short distance. You can see everything. And they see Jesus up on a donkey and the crowd's just waving palms and throwing and bowing before him. And, and everybody kind of comes over to the wall, I think. This is the picture I have in my head. They come over to the wall to see what's going on. An incredibly powerful moment. But in a couple days, it's all going to change. And the crowd that's been praising him and yelling Hosanna and praise the Lord and blessed be the king who comes is going to turn and that's going to be now angry and bitter calls for his death. Now that has always, as a Christian, I've been saved 41 years. I've been alive 51 years. I've been in church all my life. This passage has always intrigued me and it's always kind of frightened me. What's the deal here? What what? What happened to their praise on Palm Sunday when you get to Friday? Was the praise here, is what we just read in verse 37, is that genuine? And if so, how could it turn so quickly? Because the circumstances didn't really change, and Jesus certainly didn't change. The teaching and the miracles and the effect of them didn't change. The only really thing that happens, uh, the two things that happen between now and Friday are that he cleans the temple, he cleanses the temple of its impurity because it had become commercial and lacking in prayer. That's another sermon for another day. And the Pharisees had been exposed for their lack of spiritual integrity. Other than that, other than the cleansing of the temple and his exposing their impurity and their lack of integrity, there's no difference between Sunday and Friday. And yet somehow the crowd falls off. Somehow when he dies, there are only a couple people there and they're a little hesitant and it's mostly family and friends, not even all the disciples we don't think. And there's just a couple people and the crowd instead of cheering Hosanna, save us, come on king, come off the cross. Instead of that, they're yelling, spitting, throwing things at him as he hangs on the cross for our sins. So what happened? I mean, we really got to ask that. If you look at verse 37, what, what happens? Is there praise and worship 
real? Was it from their heart? Was it, a, was it a genuine statement of love for the Lord and faith in Christ? Or did they just get caught up in the moment? And as we ask those questions, here's the kind of the crux of our study this morning. I want you to take some notes. What does this teach us and, and analyze in us? How similar is the picture that we see in verse 37 to what we just did, to how we just sang and we spoke praise to the Lord? I didn't plan that. That was spontaneous. But wasn't that cool to all say something we're proud and we're grateful to the Lord for doing? So, so we hear that loud explosion of voices. We hear singing. We lift our hands. I shed tears this morning because that song just, just broke me about the, the, the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. As we do that, is that what was happening there on verse 37? And then the question becomes, is what we just did, is that going to be replicated tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and how we live? Or are we just waiting for the next service and Thursday night we'll come and we'll praise the Lord again and then Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday we'll come and praise the Lord again. But then Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday... See, the Bible calls everything that has breath to praise the Lord. That means everything and everyone that has life should praise the Lord. Jesus said, listen, if the crowd shuts up, the rocks will even cry out. And they don't breathe. I don't think, right? Rocks don't breathe? I, I failed biology, so. Everything that has breath should praise the Lord. So even those who hate Jesus Christ should still praise him. And if they don't now, they're going to someday because the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But at the moment, here's, here's what, what burdens my heart. At the moment, it seems like praise is only reserved for those who trust in Christ. And even at that Open and joyful and passionate praise like we just had seems to be limited to, to kind of a minority of Christians. We even disagree how we should praise. We even disagree methodology. We debate methodology, whether we should be singing loud or soft, whether we should use modern instruments or traditional ones, whether we should sing choruses or hymns, whether we should raise our hands, whether we should not raise our hands, whether we should be demonstrative in other ways, what the environment of worship should be like. We're debating all these things in Christianity. This is probably the biggest debate in Christianity right now. Not theology, not eschatology, not how the church should function, not, not evangelism. We're debating what worship should be like. We, we debate what praising him in prayer looks like, whether it should be private and personal or whether it should be public and passionate. To what extent should we call on the Lord around each other? And then we debate talking about him openly and telling others about him, and that stirs some disagreement and some discomfort. And, and I think a lot of Christians secretly wonder, is that really something I have to do to praise the Lord? Now, I believe those debates just distract us from the main truth of the morning. And I want to give you the main truth of the morning because it's going to set up the rest of our study. The main truth of the morning is that praising the Lord is not only an act of obedience, but it is one of our greatest expressions of love and joy. 
Praising the Lord is not just something we're called to do. It should be the greatest expression of our love and our joy. Listen to a couple of verses, and there are hundreds of verses. I think I counted 160 verses in Scripture about, specifically about praising God. But listen to a couple. Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name forever. Psalm 35, my tongue will declare your righteousness and praise all day long. Hebrews 13 calls us to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God as the fruit of our lips that's giving thanks to his name. Psalm 22 says, I'll tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I'll praise you. We just did that. Praise the Lord. You who fear him, praise him. See, every verse highlights that our praise of the Lord is to be based on our deep gratitude for all he has done to rescue us from sin and forgive us of our sin and cleanse us forever. And because he's changed us and because we're grateful for that, we now want to show our love for the Lord. In other words, praise is never obligatory. Praise is not, well, that's what we do at the start of the service. We praise God for 20 minutes. We sing four songs, and that's what we do every week, and then we're done. No, praise goes so far beyond that because praise exudes from us. It's a natural outgrowth of our relationship with Christ. So it's not confined to 20 minutes. It's in everything that we do. It's an attitude and a perspective and a lifestyle. Now, when we define it that way, when you look back at the text, that's what makes the crowd's praise in this historical account a little suspect. Because while there's no question that they recognize and worship him as Savior, their endurance in doing that falls off the moment things get dicey. The moment their hearts start to drift elsewhere, then they stop praising the Lord and they focus on that. And I wonder, and I look at my own life on this, how much does that describe us? We can easily stand here and sing, because when we see you, we find strength to face the day. In your presence, listen now, all our fears are washed away. Or we can sing, I lift my hands and I bring my song. All of my days, all of my rights, all of my wrongs. I offer my life here and beyond to the one thing that's true, Jesus, it's you. But how accurately does that describe the reality of Tuesday morning this week? Or Thursday night this week? Or Saturday midday this week? Is that what we're doing? Do we have the depth and maturity in our faith that abides in his presence and doesn't fear? Do, do we have the joy in surrendering ourselves completely, not fighting, not, not battling with the Lord, but completely surrendering to him so that that song, the reality, the truth of it, extends into our daily life? And is there constant praise? It's a hard question. Is there constant praise in this and any other situation that we face? See, we not only need to assess the quantity of our praise, we need to assess the quality of our praise. And to do that, there are some truths I want to give you. I pray this is from the Spirit this morning. Some truths I want to give you about praise that give us clear guidelines on what is authentic and from the heart versus what is impure and misguided. Because listen, if the Bible tells us that the praise of the Lord should always be on our lips, I don't know about you, but I want to get it right. 
I want to make sure that the praise I'm giving to the Lord is genuine and honoring to Him, okay? So if you're writing down, let's go a couple thoughts this morning and then we'll pray. First of all, true praise, true praise takes place all the time. True praise takes place all the time, not just in a moment of, of high emotion and passion. Worship doesn't just take place in a moment when you've got the right setting and the right people and the right music and the right atmosphere. It is a continual mindset of praise and gratitude that just gets more magnified whenever we get around other believers. The praise that we sang this morning, and we're just going to focus for a moment on singing, the praise that we sang should be how our heart's going all the time. So when we're driving down the freeway, we're praising the Lord, we're so thankful, we're, we're praying to the Lord, we're honoring Him, we're living for Him, our hearts and minds are focused on Him. So we're so full that when we get together, it's like, oh, now I'm with other believers, now it's coming out. Now I'm going to tell you how I really feel about the Lord because the Lord's so good. And I can't wait to get together with some other believers because when we start singing, I'm going for it. My voice stinks, but who cares? Because I want to tell you how much I love the Lord. See, that's why uh, when I look at this text, that's why the actions of the crowd are discouraging. Because they get caught up in the moment. And this seems like a powerful time. Jesus is now coming. I don't know why he's riding a donkey, but he's coming to establish himself as the Savior. And maybe he'll show Rome a thing or two and set himself up and get rid of our, our ungodly king. And, and this is going to be great. Yeah, blessed is the king who's coming. We've got him now. Here it is, Rome. It, it, it's coming for you. And then he gets arrested. And he gets sentenced to death. And they start to look for the people that have been hanging around with him because they want to arrest them too. And the luster of the moment wears off a little bit. And it gets even worse when they actually put him on a cross and people watch him die. And all of a sudden it doesn't seem so, so cool to say, blessed is the king. Now they go from Hosanna to crucify him. See, I think a lot of people turned because they weren't getting what they wanted politically and militarily and spiritually because he was calling them to something far more than the Pharisees were calling them to. So they stopped praising him and they turned on him. They didn't see the irony of the fact that they had it right on Sunday, but they got it wrong on Friday because he was the only way of salvation. But that happened because the praise wasn't deep in their hearts. See, this is what concerns me, and I want to be careful here. This is what concerns me about what I see in, in, in the trends in worship in the church because there's an overemphasis, and I use this phrase literally and, and verbatim, there's an overemphasis on creating the right worship experience. As if we can't praise Jesus unless the lights are off and there's smoke and uplighting and a killer band and Starbucks. Like, we, we can't, I can't worship Jesus unless you make it right. And I ask myself, how does that translate into being set apart and holy and committed to Christ? I'm not saying the two have to be mutually exclusive, but I am saying that there's no question that the church is more shallow spiritually than it's ever been before. Christians are more worldly, and the witness of Christ is more anemic. But we got to have an experience every week. 
And as soon as the experience is done, and don't make it more than 60 minutes because I'm a busy man. As soon as the experience is done, I can go back to living however I want. Now, this is not new, and, and please hear my heart this morning. I'm not trying to pick on the church. There are a lot of churches that are doing wonderful things for the Lord and drawing thousands in. God bless them. God honor them this morning. But for decades, churches have been focused on worship styles. Some churches want to work things up and get the crowd going and put the organ going and get everybody stirred up and dancing around and doing all kinds of things while other churches are completely dull and lifeless. And I want to tell you this morning, neither is indicative of true praise. Praise should not have to be manufactured. We should not have to be mechanically stirred in our hearts and minds. It should just flow out of joy and gratitude to the Lord. So we sing to Jesus that Jesus is our Savior, that our hearts are just engaged. And we say, oh, praise the Lord. I just want to talk about Jesus. You don't need to give me smoke and mirrors. Just let me sing and praise about Jesus. And this is one of the dangers for a worship leader. This is a danger for a person who's praying. This is a danger for pastors. We have to make sure that our hearts are right and our motives are pure and that everything is focused on Jesus Christ. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there's no evidence in Scripture of worship ever being dispassionate. There's no evidence in Scripture of true worship ever being dull and lifeless and, 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 and monotone and, and, and just not being engaged at all. Praise should be a clear expression of our love for the Lord. That's why praise can be expressed in any setting. We should be able to worship the Lord just as easily if we're in a desert or in a house church in China or in this church in Racine. It shouldn't change from setting to setting. Well, I can only worship Jesus if you have this and this and this. I can't worship Jesus here because that doesn't work. You've got to help me kind of stir up some of my emotions and my feelings. Listen, that's not what Scripture says. I'd love to have a full band every week and have all that going on. And we're going to get there someday. Next week we're going to have a, a big band. It's just, I, I hope next week's going to be just awesome. But listen, that's not what makes worship wonderful. What makes worship wonderful is when our hearts are engaged. I think some of the greatest moments in worship that we've had is when no instrument's playing and we're just closing our eyes and lifting our hands and praising the Lord. We don't need... Listen, we'll keep striving for it, but we don't need all the bells and whistles. We just need to love the Lord. I've worshipped the Lord in places that are loud and energetic and people are, are raising it. I've, I've worshipped the Lord and sensed the Lord's presence in those. I've also worshipped the Lord and sensed his presence when things are stripped down and quiet, like David in the field by himself. The question is, am I an observer or am I praising the Lord with passion? I, I have no idea how many of these people were truly worshiping him. But I do know that by the time Jesus got to the cross, there were very few. And by the time he resurrected, there was nobody at the tomb. Distinguishing mark of praise is that it's forever. It's not just in the moment. Peter says, when Jesus asks him in Matthew 16, he says to the disciples, who do you... Who do people say that I am? And they say, well, you think you're John the Baptist or Elijah or, or whatever. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, 
you're the son of the living God. And then he and the other disciples praised him publicly and identified him for the rest of their lives. And that leads us to the second essential truth, and we'll do this one really quickly. First, true praise takes place all the time. Second, true praise is focused on Jesus first and foremost. If Jesus isn't the central and singular focus of our praise, whether it's singing or talking or praying or whatever, if Jesus is not the singular focus, then it is not really praise. Say that again. If Jesus is not the central and singular focus of our praise, then it's not really praise. Psalm 145 says he, is, he alone is worthy of praise. So how can I say I'm praising the Lord if it's not about him? About 25 years ago, a troubling trend kind of started in Christian music where the song started to shift to being a little bit more focused on me and what I need and what I get and what I want and how I feel rather than on Jesus. And we've got to be careful of that. Even in some of the great songs that we saw, sang this morning, you've got to watch the subtlety of, of it kind of slipping into me and my and me and my and me and my instead of it being about the Lord. The key in everything that we do is to acknowledge and rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ has redeemed us, He saved us, He's delivered us, and He has secured us forever. And we have the unbelievable, humbling honor of knowing Him, trusting Him, and serving Him. If our worship is always focused on that, whether it's hymns, contemporary, fast, slow, I don't care. If we're focused on that, it's worship. As one pastor put it, Praise is an acknowledgement of his authority and lordship over your life. That's a great chalk line. Are you acknowledging? Am I acknowledging his authority and lordship over my life every second of every day? So praise is always focused on Jesus. Third, true praise recognizes that we're worthless and he's worthy. True praise focuses on the fact that we're worthless and he's worthy. Even though he was the son of God, even though he's holy and pure and he's Lord over everything, who owes us absolutely nothing. Look back at the text for a minute because it says that he wept. He wept. It's not in this text. It's in the Matthew text. I'm sorry. Let me read it for you because I want to make sure we get it. It says, it's not in the Matthew text. Well, I should have had that. Anyway, it's there. Find it later. I can't always find the text. It's in Mark or John. But you know it's there, right? Jesus comes over the hill. And he sees Jerusalem. And he doesn't just get teary like I did earlier when we were singing Jesus, it is you. He weeps. Uncontrollable sobbing. <laughs> That's what it was like. It wasn't just, I'm a little misty. The crowd's cheering, praise the Lord, blessed be the king. Hosanna, save us now. The Pharisees are criticizing. Teacher, tell your people to be quiet. And nobody sees the fact that Jesus is bawling. He's the son of God who's come in human flesh, holy and pure, to save us. 
And he's not weeping about the torture that he's going to face, which will be unspeakable. He's not weeping over the fact that he's going to bear the weight of every single sin that will ever be committed. He weeps because he's saddened by the lostness of mankind. He weeps because he is overwhelmed by the blindness of hearts. We did it to ourselves, and yet he's willing to come and take our place and suffer on our behalf and redeem us. Why would he do that? Just because he loves us. And just because he's gracious. Hallelujah, what a Savior. His mercy and his love transcends our understanding. He is worthy, hear this, of all our praise, and he is the only one that is worthy of any praise. He weeps because he knows that we're hopeless on our own, and until we admit that, and until we get in a constant state of understanding that without him we are absolutely nothing, our praise will always be stunted. He weeps. If they only knew, if they only saw it, how many people do we weep over and say, if they would only discover the truth, if they'd only yield their heart, if they would only give in from their stubbornness and their selfishness and their pride and say, God, I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. How many people do we weep over for that? What drives us to that passion? What drives us to that passion is that used to be us. Every single person in this room that is saved, that once was you. Lost, hopeless, clueless, blind, stubborn, selfish, proud, resistant, worldly, having a heart and a nature of sin. That was every one of us. And it is only by the grace of God through Jesus that we're delivered from that. So when we see somebody in that condition, we shouldn't say, we should say, I'm broken for you. I've got to tell you about it. Hear my praise from my Lord because he's changed my life. Let me tell you how he's changed my life. And let me tell you the fact that you can know that too. You don't have to live in bondage. You can live in absolute freedom because that's what God's done. That's why the best praise emanates from someone who is completely overwhelmed and broken by their understanding of not deserving salvation and being continually overwhelmed that he loves us and saves us anyway. It is being amazed by the grace of God. I, I got to confess to you, I felt that this morning. I've been saved since 1974. And when we sang that last song, I almost couldn't even sing it. I'm getting choked up now. I almost couldn't even sing the words because I was so overwhelmed after 41 years by what God's done. By the fact that he's delivered me and rescued me and saved me and I don't deserve it for a second. But that's what he's done. That's why you always want to find a church, even when you're traveling, you always want to find a church where the people are overwhelmed by the grace of God. I remember the first time I went to Brooklyn Tabernacle, I was so amazed by how the people worshipped because it poured out of their lives. It poured out of their experience. They had been rescued and saved from unimaginable things. And when they came together, they didn't just say, praise the Lord. Oh, the Lord's good. They said, oh, no, 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 no. I've been rescued from sin. 
I'm going to tell Jesus about it, and I'm going to tell you about it. And I don't care if you like it or not, because I'm praising my Lord. Oh, I pray that Harbor Rock keeps going on that path. That when somebody walks in who's visiting, they go, what is the deal with this place? Because people love the Lord. And people are overwhelmed by the grace of God. And he alone is worthy, and i got to know him. Last thought. True praise takes place all the time. True praise is focused on Jesus. True praise recognizes we're worthless and he's worthy. Last, true praise only comes out of a spirit that walks in truth. What does that mean? What does it mean to worship him in spirit and in truth? It means that only when we're trusting in the truth, living by the truth, and yielding to the spirit of truth can we worship in truth. Only then will it be authentic. If we're not doing those things, if our heart isn't right, we're double-minded, and, and, and our spirit is not aligned with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit, the net effect of that will be that our praise and our worship will either be dispassionate or disingenuous or both. If our hearts aren't aligned with the Lord, and we come in and we try to manufacture some motion and sing these songs, it, it's, it's just not going to be authentic. We may be able to sing and, and play the part, but, but it's not real. Because our hearts have to be surrendered to the Lord. We have to be grateful to the Lord. We have to be, we, we can't still be spending time as our old self and, and living according to the world and then come in and say, well, praise the name of the Lord because that's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. It's only when we can come in and say, I've been rescued, I'm surrendered, I still struggle with sin, God help me with that, but I love the Lord and I'm going to serve the Lord. So when we start singing, Jesus, it is you, now it's coming out of my heart. That's coming out of my heart. I'm not having to fake that. That's real. Not only in a worship service, but throughout the day. We try to do this, our singing will be inspire, uninspired, and our, our prayer will be difficult, and our witness will be hesitant. And the external expression, because most praise is external, the external expression of our mouths will, will just not be there. So how we live, this is the last thought we're going to pray, how we live is important because it dictates our praise. The psalmist says, my soul boasts in the Lord, not my soul boasts in me. My soul says, draw attention to me. My soul boasts in the Lord. I want to talk about his love and his mercy and his worthiness and the fact that he loves us and saves us. That's what I want to talk about. That's all I want to talk about. My soul just want to talks about, wants to talk about the Lord. And that not only affects us, but it affects other people. Because Psalm 40 says that when our praise is right, listen now, many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. In other words, when we get praise right and it's coming out of our heart, whether it's singing on Sunday morning or talking about the Lord or having a conversation at the water cooler or praying with somebody or whatever it is, when we get it right, it has a strengthening effect spiritually on other people. So we're done. When, when you think about who the Lord is and all that he's done for you, what's your response? If it's dull and lifeless, then I have to ask, have you really experienced his grace? Do you really know what it is to trust in Jesus Christ? That's not a judgment. That's just the point of analysis. Or are you so preoccupied with yourself and with your issues and the world that's inhibiting your life and your praise 
And again, that's not judgmental. I'm trying to help each of us, myself included now, to understand what's preventing us from praising the Lord. And if you look at that and you go, Paul, you just described me, then this morning confess that. We're not going to have you come forward. We're not going to have people raise hands. We're not doing that this morning. We're just going to sing and go. But, but if that's you, if you're burdened right now, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart, then I want you, when we pray in a minute, to just confess that, Lord, that's me. He just described me. How did he know? I don't know. The Holy Spirit knows. So, Lord, I've got to get my heart right with you. I've got to get right with you because I want to praise you for what you've done. If you're hesitant and quiet about your praise, whether it's singing or witnessing or prayer or whatever, I, I want to encourage you, stop being self-conscious and start being Christ-conscious. We've all, we have all got to break past this insecurity. What will somebody think? Who cares? It's not about, I say this in all love, it is not about how you feel or how you present yourself to somebody. It needs to be about Jesus. So make it about Jesus and not about you. If you can't sing, sing loudly. Hopefully, we're all singing so loudly that people won't hear it. But if they do and the room goes silent and it's just you, praise the Lord. Because you're singing praise to him, not to me. So when you sing, sing with all your heart. When you pray, pray with everything you got. When you witness, tell people about Jesus Christ. Don't worry about what people think of you. Listen, half the people in the world are going to hate your guts anyway. I resigned myself to that a long time ago, and I'm a lot happier. I, not everybody's going to like me. I'm good with that. I don't like everybody. I love everybody, but I don't like everybody. So you know what? A lot of people aren't going to like you. That's okay. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about telling people about Jesus. The disciples said, you can do whatever you want to us. You can beat us. You can whip us. You can tell us all you want, but not talking about Jesus. You're not stopping us because we're telling people about Jesus. We're going to praise him. So, so bring it on. Bring it on. And it's interesting, and I'm done. You've listened long enough. They got whipped. They got beaten. They got warned after being arrested. And it says the next day, you know what they did? They went right back to the temple, and they went house to house. And they said, we want to tell you about Jesus. That's praise. The praise of our, his mercy should be on our lips all the time. Whatever situation, whatever circumstance, whatever setting, doesn't matter. Praise him. Praise him, praise him, because he's so good. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for this word you've given us this morning. Thank you for the gift of praise, Lord. Oh, help us, Father, to be less self-conscious, to be more surrendered, and to praise you in every way. Lord, we're going to be tested on this within the hour. We're going to be tested on this when something frustrates us, when a child does the wrong thing, when we get home and we're frustrated about something. We're going to be tested on it. We want to be a people that praises you in everything, that our witness would be strong, that people would be strengthened because they see in us a love for you. Lord, increase our love for you this week. Increase our love for you. May this be a powerful week 
where we're praising you constantly. And where we gather Thursday, it's just going to be an explosion of what we've been feeling all week. And then when we get together next Sunday and we start talking about your resurrection, oh, Lord, you won't be able to stop us. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and grace in our lives. We praise you. And we will praise you throughout this week. We pray this in Jesus' name.